In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew gives us some information. In fact, all the gospel writers give us information uh, that is unique. Uh, They all share some similarities and they all have some uniqueness. Matthew is very concerned from his writing perspective to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus of Nazareth fits the criteria for the Messiah of God. And as you look at the different gospel writers, you see that although they are treating the life of Christ, the the biographical material about his life, they each have a point that they're trying to drive home. Luke presents him as the Son of Man. Mark uh, presents him as a suffering servant. John presents him as the Son of God and holds him up in his deity. But Matthew wants us to see him as king of the Jews, and he is particularly concerned that his audience recognize that this Jesus fulfills the prophecies and the criteria of Scripture for the Messiah that they were anticipating. And so he is frequently saying that it might be fulfilled, as the prophet said, as it is written, and he quotes a pertinent Old Testament passage to underscore the fact that Jesus fulfilled that. Matthew chapter 2 is no exception, and he gives us some insight into events immediately uh, following the birth of Christ. If you'll look with me, I'm going to read, and you can follow along. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king... They went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious 
And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now the interesting part about this passage of scripture, remember I told you that I was going to be sharing with you uh, some of the prophecies of the minor prophets that were fulfilled in the birth of Christ. And in this passage of scripture, we actually have four specific prophecies. There's five alluded to, but four very specific prophecies that were fulfilled concerning the birth of Jesus Christ. And Matthew gives us the story of the Magi. Now, who are these guys? What's their background? Well, we learn that they're in the east. In fact, they're probably from the regions of Babylon or perhaps even further, perhaps northern India. We're not exactly sure where over there. But they were considered to be wise men or philosophers of uh, their people. They were the kind of person, if you needed insight and understanding, you went to them for counsel. And they were among a a group of people that were students of world history, students of events, uh, students of the heavens, different signs and things that they could interpret. And somewhere along the line, and we'll see where in just a moment, But somewhere along the line, a tradition had grown up among them, and we're talking about generations and centuries, but a tradition had grown up that one day a star would appear in the heavens, and it would be a special sign that a king was born who would be the king of the Jews. Now, I want to take you back in the Old Testament to the book of Numbers. That's the fourth book in the Old Testament. If you want to turn there, Numbers chapter 24, I believe, fourth book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 24, Balak, who is the ruler of the Amalekites, has come to Balaam, who is not exactly a prophet of Israel by any means, but in those days, different people had different roles, and God apparently spoke to some of them. Balaam was noted as a seer or a prophet. And Balak, the ruler of the Amalekites, saw this massive group of people who had come out of Egypt and were now wandering in the wilderness. And the word was they were going to the land of Canaan and they were going to settle there. He was not happy. And he hired Balaam to prophesy against them. And Balaam thought, well, that's a 
good way to make a few bucks. So um, he goes before God in whatever fashion he uses. And uh, sometimes you get these interesting things in Scripture, and you just look at it and scratch your head and say, how did that work exactly? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. It's like uh, Saul going to the witch of Endor and, and see, actually seeing Samuel. I mean, you know, it's like, whoa. Uh, even she was surprised, by the way, because she knew that real spirits didn't come back from the dead, but <laughs> there was Samuel, and that wasn't a very good thing for her. But anyhow, here's this guy, Balaam, and he goes before God, and he says, I, I need a word against Israel. God says, Israel are my people. I love them. I'm not giving any word against them. And so... He goes back to Balak and says, I cannot prophesy against these people. And Balak says, well, you've got to help me out here. And so Balaam goes back again, and Balaam gets the same answer. In fact, he gets a bigger answer. And in chapter uh, 24 of Numbers, we kind of open on that event. Verse 15, Balaam's oracle, his fourth oracle, he utters this oracle, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, and falls prostrate, and whose eyes are open. I think that's Balaam's little, Balaam's little press release ahead of the time. Okay, and then he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So what's he telling you? He sees somebody. But it's not right. And it's not going to happen right away. But he says, "I see someone out there somewhere." Okay, and then he says, "A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel." Now, what's a scepter? It's what a king uses. You know, that's that's his staff of power and authority. He says, "A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will." crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth, Edom will be conquered, Seir, his enemy, will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. That is not what Balak wanted to hear. Because Balaam is saying, I see someone that's going to come out of Jacob and he's going to be a mighty conqueror. He's going to be a king. He's going to be a ruler. A star is going to rise. Now, be honest with me for a moment, okay? If that's all you knew about this statement, how many of you would draw the conclusion that one day a star would show up in the heavens that would indicate that, that a Messiah, a king, was born? How many of you would get that out of this passage? Be honest. Anybody? <laughs> I would have a hard time getting that. And so naturally, the question that I'm wondering is, how did the Magi get this? You know, how did they figure out from this passage that a star was going to announce the birth of the King of Israel? Well, the best answer I can give you is that this is 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. In that period of time, Again, this tradition, we're talking about these Eastern mystics, these Eastern counselors and philosophers, have observed the nation of Israel. 
They've seen her grow to power under Solomon. They've seen her become divided under Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They've seen her go into captivity. They've seen the Babylonian captivity. They may even, their ancestors may even have known Daniel in the king's palace in Babylon. And all the prophecies of Israel longing for and looking for a Messiah was this yearning for the one who would rise and be the king. And and I believe also, because there's a supernatural element here, that God had actually revealed to them in their traditions the meaning of this. So that as the centuries passed, there was in their tradition the expectation that one day, as they observed the heavens, and these were star watchers, One day as they observed the heavens, they would see a unique star. And that star would herald the birth of a king. And so they waited. And they waited, just like the Jews were waiting. They waited for centuries. And lo and behold, one day, the star appeared. Can you imagine that? You know how it makes the news, not long ago we thought we'd found another planet. So we thought we had ten for a while, and then they decided that one of them wasn't a planet after all that we I learned in grade school, so they, they might have taken that one away. I don't know how many planets there are right now, but, but you know, there's always excitement when somebody finds something new, and these guys are looking and looking, and, and you know, can you imagine one day they, you know, the, man, you won't believe what I saw last night. Let's go look again. And so now they're, they're all looking, and here's this star. And so they kind of form a delegation. And they say, why don't you three go check this out? And believe me, it wasn't just three people. It would not have been wise or safe for three people to start out from who knows how many miles away, 500,000, 700,000 miles away, on camels or however they traveled, by themselves, There was an entourage. There was a group of them traveling with these three dignitaries. And where do you go to find out about the birth of a king of a a foreign nation? Well, you go to the palace, right? So they go to Jerusalem and they show up at Herod's palace. You know, and it's like all the noise of rod. Here's these here's these guys, man. They're 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 philosophers from the east, and they've come with this great caravan, and they want to know about this king. And Herod says, what king? I haven't heard anything about a king. What king? This guy is a maniac. You you read history. Herod is a maniac. He's cruel. He's sadistic. He's paranoid. And he's not having any competition. And it says he was disturbed and, and all of Jerusalem was disturbed because here's these guys saying, where is the one that was born the king? Now, Herod, who is biblically illiterate, I mean, he's the ruling king and he knows nothing about the Bible. Okay, he's supposed to be king of the Jews and he knows nothing. But he knows who does. He calls the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and he gets them and he says, where is this king, this Messiah going to be born? And you know what's interesting? They knew. They knew. They knew that when Messiah came, 
he would be born in Bethlehem. And that prophecy is found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. If you want to turn there, we can look at it for a moment. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Or you can just listen to me read it. Micah is prophesying, and he says, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. And then he says, and, and this is in the midst. Remember these minor prophets were telling about all the terrible things that were going to happen to Israel, to Judah. And they're suffering and they're struggling. But there's always hope. There's always hope. It's not going to be the end. And so here in verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah... Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. I'm reading to you from the New International Version, but the New American Standard translates a little differently, and perhaps more accurately from the Hebrew, when it says, Out of you will come one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from long ago, from the ancient of days or from eternity. Now, clearly this is not an ordinary person. Because somebody's going to come out of Bethlehem who has existed from before time. That's what the ancient of days or before eternity, that's what that means. And so they know this is a very unique individual. He is going to be the Messiah of God. He's going to be the promised one. And they knew that. And so they said to Herod, this Jesus, this Messiah, they didn't call him Jesus, but they said this Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So here you have two things converging. You've got these philosophers seeing this star. And you've got the the scribes and the religious teachers of Israel in Jerusalem saying, well, he's supposed to be in Bethlehem. If it's Messiah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. What was so interesting about Bethlehem? Well, if you go again back in the Old Testament, you discover that Bethlehem is mentioned in the Bible in in many situations. For one thing, This is where Ruth and Boaz settled. You you remember the beautiful love story of Ruth and Boaz, how she went with uh, her uh, mother-in-law back to her mother-in-law's home country, and she was just going to glean some extra leftovers from the fields, and Boaz sees her, and it's like love at first sight. And and here the, the rich landowner marries this stranger from another country who's just picking up the leftovers in the fields. It's an amazing story. And out of their marriage comes a child named Obed, who grows up and has a child named Jesse, who grows up and has a child named David. And this is David who became the king. And so Ruth's story is in the Bible, because not just because it's a romance, but because this romance followed into the birth of the greatest king of Israel. I mean, even though Solomon 
reigned over more territory. David was always, man, when Israel thought of their, their champion, it was David. And God had promised that, that the scepter, the, the reigning monarchy would never pass from the throne of David. And they knew that their Messiah would eventually come from the lineage of David. And so Bethlehem uh, is that place where David's family, and it became known as the city of David. It didn't, wasn't that when David was a little guy, but after he became king, you know, where do you go in Illinois to find the birthplace of Lincoln? You know, we, we always are marking the, the what, what hometown did uh, Jimmy Carter come from? You know, we're always marking those places. And Bethlehem was no different. David is our king. He came from Bethlehem. Well, nothing had ever come out of Bethlehem, really, until David. But, but that was the hometown. Bethlehem was also uh, the place where David shepherded his father's sheep. We're told that in 1 Samuel chapter 17. He took care of his dad's sheep in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a shepherd's kind of town. It was rural, it was country, it had the hillside around it, and for thousands of years, people pastured sheep around Bethlehem. And you know, the, the, the folks in the community, the folks in the household that got tasked with the duty of being the shepherd, they were not the older children, the, the young adults. Um, as soon as a child was old enough, to become responsible. They were typically appointed the, the role of shepherd because uh, they may not be able to carry on business or, or run the farm, but they could, they could take the sheep out, take care of them, and bring them back. And, and that was the role that David played. Very, very humble, very menial, lowly responsibility delegated to the youngest member of the family. Bethlehem was a shepherd's town. It was also the place where Samuel came one day to Jesse and said, Jesse, God has sent me to you. I have this horn of oil, and I'm supposed to anoint one of your sons. And Jesse was, oh, he was so excited. You know, he lined up all his boys, and Samuel looks at each one of them, and, you know, he goes through the whole list. And he says, uh... Whoever I'm supposed to anoint is not in the group. But do you have any other sons? And Sam uh, and uh, Jesse says, well, yeah. I mean, there's a little guy. He's out there with the sheep. Well, go get him. And David comes to the meeting. And Samuel sees him. And God says, that's my man. And Samuel pours the oil on David and anoints him the king over Israel while he's still a shepherd boy. Bethlehem is the home of shepherds. It's also the home of kings. Bethlehem is the place where not too far out of town, Benjamin was born. Do you remember Benjamin, the youngest son of Rachel? Joseph was the oldest Benjamin. Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob. 
that was the one that he really wanted. You know how his father-in-law pulled the switcheroo on the wedding night and gave him Leah instead, and he wakes up the next morning, and he's like, oh, no. So he serves another seven years for Rachel. Rachel was the woman of his dreams. And she has Joseph, and then on the way to Bethlehem at Ephrath, she has Benjamin. And it broke Jacob's heart because she died in childbirth. And as she was breathing her last breath, she named him Ben-Ami, or Ben-Oni, which means son of my trouble. Jacob wouldn't have anything to do with that. He renamed him immediately Ben-Hamin, Benjamin, son of my right arm. And there the scripture says that Jacob buried Rachel And Moses tells us as he writes the Pentateuch, and her tomb can be seen to this day, at least in Moses' day, right outside of Bethlehem. It's very significant because we're going to learn in a little bit that something tragic happens in Bethlehem. And the scripture refers to Rachel, who is buried right near there, in the environs of Bethlehem, mourning with such grief that it's heard in Ramah. Now, Bethlehem is about three or so miles to the south of Jerusalem. Ramah is about 10 or 12 miles to the north. And, and over this distance of almost 20 miles, there is the sound of weeping heard from Rachel out of Bethlehem. Very, very significant place. And so... The wise men give the answer, or or the the scribes give the answer to the wise men. Bethlehem. So Herod kind of calls them back in and says, okay, here's the plan. I've learned that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and what I want you to do is I want you to go find him. And when you've found him, come back and tell me so I can go worship. Now, we used to sing a, a Christmas um, that's all I can do to keep from singing it, you know. When you have found him, bring me word again. Well, he has no good intentions because he is going to use them unwittingly to them as spies to find out where this contestant is for the king's throne. And he has every intention of killing this baby as soon as he learns where he is. Now, the Magi don't understand all of that just yet, but they they go on toward Bethlehem, and lo and behold, the Scripture says, as they start down toward Bethlehem, that star shows up again. <laughs> now, probably they came to Herod at night, because you know the Scripture says he called them secretly, And and probably that kind of a meeting took place at night. And they probably left right away. And as they're heading out, they see this star. It shows up. They kind of lost track of it, I guess. But now it's there again. They can clearly see it in the sky. And it's coming over toward Bethlehem. That's a miracle in and of itself, you know. I mean, ship's captains for centuries before they figured out how to do it electronically with GPS... 
use the sextant and everything to plot their course, and I'm sure they're really smart. But here's this star that pinpoints a house. That's how we know, by the way, that this was not the night Jesus was born, but at least a little while afterwards. They come to the house where he is in Bethlehem, and they recognize him, and they worship him as a king. And then when they get ready to leave, you know, they're supposed to go back and tell Herod, but they didn't, because they were warned that they should go home another route. And, and all of a sudden, they realize the sinister plot behind uh, the discovery, and so they go a different direction. And the Scripture says in verse 13 of Matthew 2, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he says, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. If you still have your thumb back there in the Minor Prophets in Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, we find this prophecy. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in the context of the passage, when you read it in Hosea, it appears as though he's talking about the Israelites coming out of the land of Egypt and going to the land of promise. You remember, God delivered them from the Egyptian bondage. And all throughout Scripture, that has stood for the symbol of, of living in the bondage of sin and moving into the promised land of freedom, of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey, a great place to be. And the Passover lamb and the sprinkling of the blood and the cleansing and covering of their sin. But nowhere do I read that God, particularly in the singular sense, calls this nation His, His Son. And Matthew makes it clear to us that this was not simply referring to the exodus from Egypt, but the particular wording of this prophecy was pointing to the Deliverer, the real Deliverer, not Moses, but Jesus, who would deliver His people from sin. And here it specifically says, out of Egypt, I will call my son. Have you ever thought to yourself, okay, we're just into a couple of prophecies now, but isn't it amazing that God chooses a couple who live in Nazareth to be the, the earthly parents of Jesus Christ? This couple lives in Nazareth. But he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. How do you, how do you accomplish that? Well, a decree comes out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed and that everybody should go back to the town of their birth and their lineage so that they can do the census properly. And under Roman law, the couple who are in Nazareth have to go to Bethlehem. And Luke says it so beautifully, and so it came to pass that as they were there, the days were accomplished for her to be delivered, and so she gave birth to her firstborn son in Bethlehem this couple from Nazareth. And now, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Well, how does that happen? Well, they're already south, 
And Herod is now on the rampage and they've got to escape to safety. And which direction you go further south, the closest border is into Egypt where there is a large contingent of Jewish people living in Alexandria and they can find some refuge among their own people safely beyond the reach of Herod. And so Jesus ends up in Egypt. When Herod realized he'd been tricked, he got furious. And you see something into the cruelty and the sadism and the paranoia of this guy. Since he couldn't find the exact child, he sends a group of hoodlums into Bethlehem to kill every baby boy under the age of two. He did the calculations, the time when the Magi had seen the star, and the journey and all of that, and he put it all together and he said, this kid's got to be younger than two years of age. Go kill every baby that's under, every baby boy that's under the age of two. Can you imagine what a madman? And scholars, historians, feel that he probably did not use the official I mean, even the palace guards and Herod had guards. But remember, they were underneath the overarching rule of Rome. They couldn't just do whatever they wanted to. They had to get permission. How did Herod pull it off that he went to a small town and and slaughtered babies? Well, most historians feel that he probably hired some hoodlums, some thieves and robbers to go do the deed for him because that was the kind of thing he was known for. And that way he could pay them on the side and it wouldn't come back directly to him. But however it happened, these soldiers, these hoodlums, these whatever robbers show up in Bethlehem. One of the ladies in the first service said something interesting to me. She says, you know, we hear about the death of the baby boys, but we don't know how many mothers died She said, I would die before someone would kill my child. And I thought, how many moms really would be like that? How many mothers died protecting? How many fathers died protecting their children? It was, can you imagine in a whole town, every baby boy being murdered? Can you imagine what the town would be like, the sadness? The, the, the power of, of grief and, and gloom over a town. And, and here it says that the weeping, it was almost like Rachel all over again is weeping for her child, but for her children. It's like her, we, her weeping is heard. Remember, she's born right, uh, buried right there in that area, is heard all the way to Ramah. And this is the prophecy of Jeremiah. From Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, where the scripture says, This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is in the context of the coming of Messiah and deliverance. And in the midst of it, there is this statement that is literally fulfilled 
in the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ as he is carried safely to Egypt by Joseph. Finally, Herod dies. Good riddance. And an angel appears in a dream to Joseph and says, Get up and take the child and his mother. For those who were trying to kill him as dead, you can go back to Israel. So he took the child and went back to the land of Israel. But he heard that Archelaus, Herod's, um, was, uh, was reigning in the place of his father Herod, Herod's son. And he was afraid to go there, being warned in a dream. So he went to the district of Galilee, to the town of Nazareth, so that it would be fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, this last prophecy happens to be the fifth one in the chapter. He will be called a Nazarene. It's kind of an interesting prophecy because it's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. There is nothing in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene, not in those specific words. But there are a couple of things about Nazareth that stand out. And one of the things that the Jews so clearly missed, but Matthew brings out throughout his gospel, that the Jews missed the suffering servant part of Jesus Christ the Messiah. They, they got the king part when he reigns and rules, but they missed the, the suffering servant. They missed Isaiah 53. They missed the Psalms. They missed so many passages of Scripture that speak of him as lowly and humble and meek and suffering. But Nazareth was a town whose, whose reputation was one of lowly and uh, kind of like, almost like Skid Row and humble and not a place you wanted to be from. In fact, when Jesus was calling his disciples and he called Philip and Philip went to his brother Nathaniel and says, come, we found the, the Messiah and he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. What are you talking about? Nazareth was not a place that was noted for prestigious people or prestige in any sense uh, arising and yet, the word Nazareth means branch or root from the Hebrew Nazareth. And it's interesting that in Isaiah 11:1 1, it says, A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And the very name Nazareth means root or branch. And it also means humble and lowly. And here is Jesus. The tradition, apparently, as I've read the commentators, the tradition uh, was that the term Nazarene had come to refer to someone of lowly or menial estate. And so Jesus was called a Nazarene from Nazareth, but perhaps an allusion to the fact that he was the branch and root of Jesse. I don't guess we'll ever solve that problem precisely, but certainly it fits the character of Jesus Christ. There's some lessons that I want to highlight for us before we go today out of, these, out of this narrative. 
First of all, the heritage of Jesus Christ. The heritage. He was born a servant in a shepherd's town. And you know, and when you look at that and, and you and you consider the fact that Jesus said, I have not come to lord it over you. That that's what that's what the rulers and, and Gentiles and people like that wonder. I have come to serve you. I have come to be a servant. He was born in Bethlehem, a shepherd's town. But he was also born in Bethlehem, a king's town. Bethlehem, the city of David. And he was recognized not only by the Jewish shepherds, who came to worship him the night of his birth, but he was recognized by the Gentile philosophers as king of the Jews. He was not just the Jewish Messiah, but he was the Savior of the world. And it's clearly marked in the circumstances surrounding his birth. The other thing that kind of stands out to me about this passage is Joseph. Have you ever thought about Joseph? You know, Mary gets a lot of press. And some people give her too much, but yet she's not in any way to be despised. Mary was chosen by God to be the mother, from a human standpoint, of the Son of God. But people don't often think about Joseph. It's like, yeah, he was kind of there for a while and he wasn't, we don't hear much about him. But I believe that God chose this couple by divine providence. And here is not only Mary, behold the handmaiden of the Lord, whatever you want to do, be it done unto me according to your word. But here is Joseph, a godly man. I mean, think about, think about Joseph for just a minute. This angel shows up in the middle of the night. Your fiancé is pregnant. Say, what? Your fiancé is pregnant. Oh, great. But she's a virgin, still. Right. This man hears incredible news and believes it by faith from God. And the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary to, to make her your wife. Keep her a virgin until Messiah is born. Name him Jesus, because he'll save his people from his sins. And Joseph says, okay. I mean, this is amazing. Because Joseph was always suspected as being the father of Jesus a little illicit premarital stuff going on. That was always the slur. Joseph accepted that. He and Mary knew the truth. But what impresses me in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel is Joseph has these dreams and he listens to God. You know? I mean... He doesn't get up in the morning and say, you know, Mary, as he's putting the coffee on, you know, Mary, I, I had the strangest dream last night. What do you think of it? 
Forget the coffee, forget the discussion. When Joseph has this dream in the middle of the night about Egypt, he's up right now. We're leaving now. Okay, i got to pack. No, we're leaving now. Out the door they go, whatever they can grab. They're on the way. Joseph is always obeying instantly the voice of God. Coming in the strangest ways. And I find a man who is both simple and profound in his faith. He's simple in that God doesn't have to send it to him three different ways. You know, text him and email him and IM him and everything. I mean, it's just like right now I've got a dream. I'm done. I'm going. I hear you. He is simple, but he's profound because he's willing to be obedient in incredible circumstances. I mean, he didn't say, where am I going to find a job in Egypt? How am I going to make this work? We're out of here. We're on the way. All and, and God had to have a man like Joseph to protect the infant life of Jesus Christ. Because he came as a man. He came as a baby. came as a child. And there was that covering in the family as God used Joseph. I'm not overplaying his importance here, like God is impotent and couldn't manage it on his own. But God uses means most frequently, and Joseph was a man that God could count on to be obedient. And I wonder if you and I have that heart to be that obedient, that attentive, that attuned. When God speaks, it's, yes, Lord, I'm on my way. I'm ready to do what you ask. The final thing, as I close, that I want to point out is, a lot of times we say, or at least I say, that, and it's kind of a cliche, that God invaded human history in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, we think of God coming out of the glories of heaven, coming down to this earth, being born of a virgin and laid in a feeding trough, and and we say God invaded human history. But, friends, God invaded human history, and those are warfare terms. And this was war. Jesus Christ, John says, was a light shining in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus Christ came to snatch away from the devil what he had ruled for thousands of years since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and went his way, not God's way. And the devil, from day one, tried every way he could to kill him. I think it started out on a donkey ride from Nazareth to Bethlehem at probably the eighth month or ninth month of pregnancy. That, that in itself could have done the trick. And then there's no place to, to, to go. And, you know, when I went through paramedic training, we were given all the rules for sterile technique in delivery. All the things you had to do to keep the baby clean. And Jesus is wrapped in cloths and laid in a feeding trough. 
And now, Herod's on his case. And, you know, sometimes in warfare, we euphemistically speak of collateral damage. What the media means by that is non-combatants, innocents were killed that weren't supposed to be in the line of fire, but it happens. Think about being a mother in Bethlehem when Herod went crazy and the collateral damage in Bethlehem. This is warfare. This is warfare. And all throughout his life, Satan was trying to kill him one way or another. In the wilderness, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Let me take you up there and you jump. In the boat, in the sea, I'll I'll drown you if I can. In the crowds who were about to push him off a cliff. On and on throughout his life. This was not, the, the, Calvary was not a one-time crisis. Satan tried to do him in time and time again, starting here at his birth. This was warfare. And in the spiritual warfare, God chose a couple whose hearts were tender toward him, whose minds were open, whose will was obedient that they could execute the commands of God as necessary. And Jesus Christ, from his earliest moments, divinely surrounded. And then the prophecies. I've just mentioned four of them distinctly and specifically this morning. There are close to three dozen specific, detailed prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ surrounding his birth. Do you know what the chances are of one person accidentally fulfilling over 30 prophecies? It's not possible. Mathematicians that have looked at it said it's not possible. There's only one way it could happen. God who foreknows and pre-writes history foretells to give us evidence that this Jesus of Nazareth via Bethlehem and Egypt is in fact the Messiah of God, the Savior of the world. Praise his name. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Encourage us, Lord, and as we go forth, I guess biggest on my mind is, am I the kind of person you can trust? to be obedient when you speak. The question is not whether or not I can hear you. How do I figure out what God is saying? That's your job, Father. It's your job to make your word clear. But the question is, when you do, and you will, we never have to doubt whether you're able to communicate. Am I willing to obey? Am I willing to give instant obedience to your Lordship and be the kind of person that you can trust? I pray, Father, that we will be like Joseph and that we will be willing 
in the battle for the souls of men and women to be entrusted with the mission and to fulfill our calling. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.